I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, the Executive Director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. And on this episode of our podcast, Emerging Tech Horizons, uh, I'm joined by Dr. William Bonvillian. Uh, Bill is a lecturer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He teaches innovation and science policy courses in the Science, Technology, and Society program and the Political Science Department. He's also a Senior Director for Special Projects at MIT's Office of Digital Learning, leading research projects on workforce education. Uh, prior to that, from 2006 to 2017, Bill was director of MIT's Washington office, reporting to MIT's president. In this position, he worked to support MIT's strong and historic relations with federal R&D agencies and his role on national science policy. And I will say, he was a major, major force in Washington, D.C., incredible impact. Uh, Bill assisted with major MIT technology initiatives on energy technology, the convergence of life, engineering, and physical sciences, and advanced manufacturing and online higher education. Prior to MIT, Bill served for 17 years as a senior policy advisor in the U.S. Senate, where his legislative efforts included science, technology policy, and innovation issues. He worked extensively on legislation, creating the Department of Homeland Security, on national intelligence reform, on climate change, on defense and life science R&D, and on national competitiveness and innovation, including legislation leading to the America Competes Act in 2007. In addition to all that, Bill is one of our foremost thought leaders in, uh, in, in how government policy can support innovation and the role of government in the R&D enterprise. So, Bill Van Vignan, thank you so much for joining me on, on, on uh, this episode. Thank you, Mark. Glad to do it. I, I want to I start out. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how, did you, how did your career bring you to the point where you are today? Yeah, good question, Mark. Uh, it was a chaotic series of steps. but. Um, I was always interested in participating in the policy arena. So, you know, after college, studied religion actually for a couple of years and then went on to uh, went on law school. Uh, and, you know, practiced law for a time period, also worked in the executive branch. And I was involved in a, that was a crisis time period for U.S. manufacturing. So I worked on uh, some of those issues in the executive branch uh, as a deputy assistant secretary of transportation. Then went back to law practice, but I had um, gotten enough experience with both the executive branch and the Hill that I was eager to get back into the policy fray. So left law practice after a while, and then went to work in the U.S. Senate, as you said, for some 17 years working working really on technology policy issues primarily. So that's how I got into the world and then went on to also work at MIT and then teaching and researching now. Very good. Excellent. Um, so you talked about industrial policy. Um, why is it a topic that many are talking about today? Well, there really are three drivers, Mark, as you know, that are pushing the U.S. towards a more industrial policy kind of approach. Obviously, a major concern about the evolution of China's technology advances, a competition with China over technology, which has geopolitical aspects as well. The second driver has been climate change. Uh, that requires really intervention in the energy markets uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. 
And then a third one in the last couple of years was the coronavirus. And that really pushed us to have a major interventionist series of policies that uh, labeled Operation Warp Speed that, that drove us towards more, uh, more involvement. Very good. In addition, in addition to, to your many works, you, you've recently written an article about industrial innovation policy. And I note the term innovation, and I know you have written quite a bit about innovation. How is industrial innovation policy different from just industrial policy? Well, I mean, the United States, talking about the U.S., the U.S. has long practiced kind of industrial policy approaches in a series of economic areas, right? Agriculture, deeply interventionist policies, pricing, price support systems, farmer support systems, and so on. Uh, and in health, you know, obviously through the, the major entitlement programs. So, and in transportation, the U.S. provides through the government much of the transportation infrastructure. So these are historic, and there are others, but those are leading areas where the government has long played a role in the economy. Industrial innovation policy is a little different. It's about governmental interventions at the innovation stage, right? At the point where R&D becomes technology implementation. And that has not been nearly as widespread, except, of course, in the Defense Department. Uh, so it's that industrial innovation policy that's really emerging now, driven by these three drivers that, uh, that I just mentioned. So, Bill, I'm curious, in your opinion, why has the United States resisted industrial policy approaches in the past? I mean, it, it's, a, it's kind of a long historic story, and there's roots, Mark, that go back to like, you know, Jefferson and Jackson and Hamilton. Uh, but in more recent times, I mean, mainstream economics, neoclassical economics in the U.S. is long kind of opposed industrial policy. And Neoclassical economics is organized, as you know, around concepts of markets and pricing efficiency. And the governmental role, a governmental intervention uh, post the R&D stage is really seen as interfering with market efficiency. But neoclassical economics has long had a problem with innovation. It's essentially def been defined as what they call exogenous to economics. It's outside their system. It doesn't fit with their modeling around markets and pricing. It's just too complex a system to model. Yet innovation requires not just R&D, but applied development through the implementation stage. And the question is whether there can be a governmental role at those, at those stages. I mean, if we define uh, industrial policy as a governmental intervention, not just at the R&D stage, but in subsequent stages, uh, the, uh, you know, the post-R&D implementation times, really to the scale up and implementation of a technology, uh, that's where the controversy has come about. Now, that system was put into place at the end of World War II by you know, the great Vannevar Bush, presidential science advisor who kind of designed our post-war R&D system. And his view was 
the governmental role is fine for R&D. Right. Right. And the, the governmental role is, is basic research. Everything else should be left to industry. Now, yeah. the Defense Department rapidly found as the Cold War came on, that was, that was not workable. That was not the approach they had taken during World War II. They had a much more connected system during World War II uh, with deep relationships between governmental role, industry, and universities. DOD kept that connected system in place. The civilian side did not. And that's where the controversy has been. That Vannevar Bush model, in effect, led us to disaggregate the actors here. We disconnected the system. And we created what's known in the, in the science tech policy world as the valley of death, a gap between the research side and the actual technology development side. So we've, and, and crossing that valley of death has been a, you know, kind of a major problem uh, in our system. And look, now with legislation and executive branch moves, really since 2020, we're really grappling with this. We've made prior moves. Uh, there have been prior periods uh, where we've attempted to make those connections better. Uh, obviously, in Sputnik, which led to creation of things like DARPA and NASA, uh, a more connected system evolved, obviously, on the defense side. Uh, in the 1980s, in the competitiveness period over manufacturing, um, we created a whole set of programs for the Manufacturing Extension Program and the Bayh-Dole Act and Semitech and the R&D tax credit and so on. We created a whole set of programs to kind of make better connections on the kind of civilian side, the non-defense side of our, of our uh, sectors. Uh, so there was that movement in the 1980s. And then, you know, an energy challenge started to come to the forefront, really starting around the 2000s. And that led to more connected activities on the energy side. And then in a kind of a, in a, kind of a more recent period, we began to address our problems in manufacturing as, as China's manufacturing sector in 2011 passed the U.S. in manufacturing output, began waking up to issues in our manufacturing sector. Uh, again, it had been a disconnected system there. Um, so we, began, we created 16 advanced manufacturing institutes uh, starting in 2012. But those are kind of past moves. The moves in recent years are considerably more dramatic in 2020. Right. Right. Yeah, there have been a series, Mark, um, you know, starting with Operation Warp Speed, uh, which was in some ways the most significant of all. It was a massive intervention into vaccine development in 2020 with guaranteed production contracts to industry to produce and then a governmental, major governmental role in distribution. It was a whole portfolio approach to a range of vaccine technologies. Operation Warp Speed, a, a kind of a joint agency effort, uh, picked you know, a series of four vaccine platforms and then picked winners, frankly, the research projects that were furthest along in development, uh, including famously mRNA, uh, and then really supported the development of those uh, of those vaccine platforms. And the result was frankly, I mean, some estimates are three to 4 million lives saved in the United States alone. So that was a dramatic intervention at kind of all stages post R&D. The CHIPS Act, you know, as you know well, was an attempt to restore US semiconductor leadership. 
CHIPS Act passed in 2020. It was funded in 2022. Um, but U.S. semiconductor firms have been falling behind. Intel had fallen behind both TSMC and Samsung in Taiwan and Korea. Uh, China had been making massive, massive funding interventions into semiconductors in an attempt to build up their system. So since chips turned out to be a core technology, uh, really, which many other technologies are dependent upon, the U.S. intervened with the CHIPS Act, a $52 billion program, $12 billion of which is kind of advanced R&D, the rest of which is stand-up new industrial facilities in the U.S., new fabs. Uh, but we also passed a major infrastructure bill with energy technology demonstrations. We worked on assuring domestic supply chains in a series of areas. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act really put major funding, $375 billion behind new energy climate technologies, uh, including tax and consumer incentives to implement those. And then finally, the Endless Frontier Act, Chips and Science Act, really attempted to, to redo the National Fi Science Foundation, traditionally our basic research agency, and add a whole portfolio of uh, applied programs there. So those are the kind of major activities in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I actually, I'd, I'd be curious about your, your take on, on kind of on trying to retool the National Science Foundation. You know, I've, I've always had the philosophy that when strategy hits culture, culture wins every time. And there's, of course, a certain culture in the National Science Foundation, and which serves basic science quite well. But what's what is your what is your 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 take on this the, the, these latest efforts with NSF? Um, look, I, I I concur in your point about you know it's it's going to be challenging for NSF to take up these tasks. Uh, essentially, what the Congress did was it identified ten critical technology areas. Uh, you know, AI, quantum. You know, you you name the list. Uh, where the U.S. really needed to make major technology advances to kind of keep pace with the level of investments that China is making. And by the way, China has an industrial policy system. Um, a recent report from CSIS mm -hmm. estimates that they spend about $450 billion a year on industrial policy subsidies and support programs with industry. Uh, and on top of that, they also have a whole mechanism that we had we have never kind of contemplated, which they call guidance funds, which are private sector led, uh, but they focus on critical technology areas that the government has identified as priorities and provide equity financing for firms to kind of move into those technology fields. You know, that's, they have a trillion dollars has been spent on those guidance funds so far. That's government seed money, which is matched by private sector money. You know, we have no mechanism like that. There's whole issues as to the efficiency of that system. But again, we don't have tools like that. So we're very much in the catch-up role. And NSF was charged with trying to catch up in those 10 critical technology areas. Um, you know, the legislation, the science part of the Chips and Science Act, previously known as the Endless Frontier Act, has development and prototyping support. It has translation accelerators. It has testing and demonstration uh, capabilities. It has a whole effort to build regional innovation in other parts of the country outside the coasts, which have been, have been facing, you know, falling kind of geographically behind in, in key innovation areas. Um, so it's an attempt to, to boost regional 
innovation. That may be the hardest task of all because we haven't really been very successful in doing that in many cases in the past. Uh, so these regional innovation hubs are particularly challenging. There's workforce education pieces. There's, you know, there's some gaps here. Um, you know, can a technology development effort really be created within a basic science agency, as you raised the question? But on the other hand, yeah. you know, we've done that in many other, uh, in many other agencies. You know, DOD has fundamental research at the office of, of at at, uh, at the uh, Naval Research Laboratory, but plenty of applied work as well. Uh, DOE does the same. So. Uh, I think there's a big challenge around creating these regional hubs. Can we make those regional interventions work uh, on workforce education? The focus really is on STEM ed and the legislation, but the technical skilled workforce where we've got real issues uh, really wasn't included. Uh, there was some additional money for manufacturing, but not a whole lot given the scale of the problem we've got. Uh, and, you know, we were missing a financing provision. We don't have any kind of financing mechanism in this legislation, uh, like uh, the kind of mechanism we were talking about before that China's been able to use and other countries, right? Taiwan, Japan, Korea, uh, Germany, all have pretty strong industrial policy programs with government playing a significant interventionist role at the implementation stages. Uh, we don't. We historically haven't really had this on the non-defense side. So we're trying to do it. And it'll be challenging. Mm. So you, you mentioned that you mentioned those other countries. Um, how would you rate their success? I know it's, 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 you, you gave us a long list of countries that, that have an industrial policy. How would how would you rate their success? You talked about the, the potential inefficiencies of China's system, and yet they're putting a tremendous amount of funding and we've seen them go after whole industries and build up whole capabilities. Um, are there are there other countries that we can learn from? How would I rate the rate the efficiencies? Well, I mean, I mean, let's look at both some of those countries and look at the U.S. I mean, success stories in the U.S. You know, I think it's kind of undoubted that Operation Warp Speed was a was a major success story. Um, you know, it was industrial policy. It picked winners, guaranteed contracts from the government to industry, technology certifications, where the FDA's emergency use approval really assured immediate market entry, uh, flexible contracting through the Defense Production Act to really compel suppliers to maintain supply chains, uh, mapping of supply chains by DOD in, in depth. Uh, support for production scale-up at factories. Government personnel were integrated into companies, not to compromise regulations, but to speed up regulatory compliance. Uh, and there was national distribution. So this is, you know, this is a classic industrial policy, particularly industrial innovation policy intervention uh, that worked. I mean, Tesla is another case study, right? You know, we all think Tesla emerged unimpeded from Elon Musk's brain, but, um, you know, it's 20, it's 2022 market value is down, but it's 2021 market value is 1.06 trillion, I think is the number, which was larger than yeah, the, yeah, the other top the other five automobile makers combined. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they, 
and they and they earned fifty three billion dollars in profits in twenty twenty one. So where did they come from? Well, there was deep governmental intervention here. The government wanted electric vehicles, uh, and and has for some time wanted to encourage them. Uh, so there was government R and D for developing lithium ion batteries. There were $7,500 tax incentives to consumers for buying electric vehicles, really a market creation stage. Uh, a government loan from the Department of Energy's loan program of $465 billion, uh, million, excuse me, really saved Tesla from bankruptcy. It was approved in 2009, 2009 uh, repaid in 2013. Uh, charging station support. I mean, there's 7.5 billion in the latest 2021 infrastructure bill for charging stations. That's for electric vehicles. Uh, and then the state of California's clean air regulations really pushed in a major auto market, really pushed the entry of electric vehicles. And then California had what it called zero emissions credit, a whole offset program, which moved $428 million for companies that weren't making electric vehicles to companies that were, i.e. Tesla. So Tesla was getting cross-subsidized through a governmental program. So these are major industrial interventions that really at very key moments played a critical role in Tesla's evolution. So those are a couple of success stories in the US. I mean, on the failure side, yes, no question about it. This is hard to do. This is not just R&D, which we have a pretty good idea of how to do. It's a much more complicated intervention. But the, the problem story has been Tesla, uh, excuse me, has been Solyndra, um, you know, back in the, about 10 years ago, Solyndra was making thin, thin film uh, solar technologies. And China at the same time was dumping low cost um, PVC panels into the marketplace. Thin film, even though it's an, a better technology, just couldn't compete with the governmental subsidies in China. So Slyndra failed, and a $535 billion loan from the Department of Energy uh, couldn't save it. Now, the government ended up not losing money on this, but it became a very controversial example of governmental attempted industrial interventions. So it's not a simple process. Other countries have had successes and failures, of course. Uh, China's interventionist policies have made it the largest manufacturing power in the world by a significant amount over the U.S. now. Uh, Taiwan and Korea have had massive semiconductor subsidies from their governments that have placed their, their companies uh, into world leadership on semiconductors. So there are examples of industrial policy successes, industrial innovation policy successes, but also a failure. And all of that points to the difficulty in, in smart organization of these programs. Right. So, Bill, you've, you've talked about some of our industrial policy successes, Operation Warp, Warp Speed, for example. Uh, you talked about Tesla and the, the support that they received. What about policy failures? Um, when, when, when did U.S. industrial policy fail? Well, as I said, Mark, I think Solyndra is the big example of this. Uh, but the other thing we've got to keep in mind here is you know, we've got a non-defense sector that has been non-interventionist and a defense sector where the government really has practiced industrial policy for a long period of time. And that defense innovation sector has brought us, you know, lots of success stories. So 
you know, U.S. through DOD in significant part, its, it's, it's accomplishments in aviation, in space, in electronics, uh, and then in computing and the internet. I mean, those are huge innovation ways that the more connected defense innovation system uh, has led to. Now, are there platform failures? As you well know from your own background in DOD, for sure, there are platform failures littered throughout that history of DOD. So it's really hard to undertake these programs. But the three drivers that I talked about before, particularly this technology competition with China, I think is really pushing us to try and figure out how to do this better. Um, and you know, if we don't, I think it's clear on a, to both parties at this point that the consequences are going to be pretty serious. Yeah, I I would point out the irony that. Um, you know, in the area of artificial intelligence, we spent a lot of time in the Pentagon talking about introducing more artificial intelligence, machine learning into our systems. It's a field that was really boosted significantly by DOD investments, DARPA and other agencies. And now the commercial sector has gotten way, way ahead of what we could do in the government. And our, our, our challenge was pulling some of that commercial capability into the government. Uh, a little bit, a little bit ironic, I always thought. Right. Well, I mean, DOD has often done that. In other words, it's it's helped scale up technologies, particularly in the information technology area and now in AI. It's helped scale up technologies in the civilian sector. Uh, computing is the big story. Uh, and then in turn, uh, taken advantage of that uh, because the civilian sector is going to be able to muster much more follow-on capital, frankly, than even DOD. So the whole incremental advances that the breakthrough advances have come at, have been at the DOD level and look at DARPA's history in, in, in the IT area. Uh, but the follow on scale up incremental advances that have, that have been critical and, you know, incremental advances are not as sexy as radical advances, but they're pretty important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is really come from the civilian sector. So on a good day, you know, DOD has been able to make this balance work. Yeah. So let me let me ask you, I, I guess, the, the sixty four thousand dollar question is sixty four billion dollar trillion dollar. Is the U.S. actually ready for an industrial policy? Well, I mean, DOD has always done industrial policy, as you know. Um, and but we're now attempting it in a series of other, uh, you know, technology sectors and you know, there's bipartisan support, but I would argue that we we just don't have the infrastructure in place that we're going to need to do this. And so, you know, let me highlight, you know, some issues here. One is scale-up financing. We just don't have mechanisms to do that scale-up. And that is an area where China, frankly, and again, there are inefficiencies there and corruption and so forth, but they have been able to do uh, scale up in some very dramatic kind of ways. Their ability to get collaborative firms working together in a region and scale up a technology into rapid production, we can't do that like, you know, like China has been able to do it. Um, and, the, and the heart of that issue, I think, is the scale up financing issue. We're going to have to think about that. And, you know, China's mechanisms are not going to be ours. We're going to have to figure out our own kind of mechanisms to do this. But I think that's a gap in the system. Another gap in the system is on the manufacturing side. Uh, 
you know, the U.S. is just not keeping up with advanced manufacturing technologies. That's a particular problem for our small and mid-sized firms. Uh, almost half of U.S. industrial output is small and mid-sized firms among their 500 employees. And those firms don't do R&D, and they have been very far behind in productivity advances. So U.S. manufacturing productivity has been stagnant or falling for 15 years now. And, you know, advanced manufacturing is going to be absolutely critical in, uh, in any kind of industrial policy approach. And looking at the Manufacturing Institute model and other mechanisms, I think, is going to be key. Um, and then a third one, I think, here, a really priority area that we need to get a handle on is cross-agency collaboration. I mean, you suggested this earlier. We've got NSF running off with a lot of investment in AI. We've got DOD investing in AI. We've got AI, you know, in the healthcare area. Um, we've got very limited ability. We have very decentralized R&D agencies and the ability to put together cross-cutting efforts and cross-learning between agencies. And it was really a problem in our system. I think we're going to have to tackle. So those are some of the issues. Uh, I think the big three issues, in my mind. But, you know, there's others. Um, we don't have the talent base to be able to manage these projects in a lot of these agencies that are now being charged to do this at places like DOE and the Commerce Department and NSF. Um, you know, we're gonna need the ability, we're gonna need a talent pool that understands how to map supply chains and fill in gaps. Uh, we're gonna need a talent base that knows how to undertake testing and demonstration, uh, a very sophisticated stage. Uh, we're gonna need mechanisms for technology certification and validation that's worked well on the life science side we have nothing equivalent to that to that fda approval process that virtually guarantees a market once it's certified once a technology is certified we have nothing like that on our hard tech physical and engineering science side and that's a very useful mechanism to create markets um, we're going to need to use those flexible contracting mechanisms we explored in operation warp speed the defense production act and something DARPA developed, other transaction authority, uh, our, our kind of flexibility in, in contracting is going to be key. Um, and then government procurement programs can really help scale up these technologies. So, But that's going to involve changing the way we approach procurement, not only to lowest cost, but to tweak that system so we really encourage it to bring these new technologies to the forefront. So those are the, some of the capabilities, Mark, that I've been thinking about that we're really going to need to nurture to make industrial innovation policy work. Bill, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that be the, the last word. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Again, for our audience, I want to call your attention to Bill's most recent work in the Annals of Science and Technology Policy entitled Industrial Innovation Policy in the United States. It's really quite a worthwhile read. Bill, thanks again for joining us. Hope we can have you back on a future episode. Thanks, Mark. I enjoyed it. Okay.